You're listening to Connecting the Universe from Mike Ricksecker and ConnectedUniversePortal.com. library of the connected universe for those listening to the podcast version of this later however please join us every wednesday night eight o'clock p.m eastern time for the full connecting the universe experience on connecteduniverseportal.com it's a 30-day free trial which gives you access to weekly connecting the universe interactive class sneak peek behind the scenes videos monthly q a's exclusive articles insider travel blogs, including ancient Egypt, which we are going to be getting a lot more of here within a few weeks, the America, Southwest, Ireland, and more. All this at connecteduniverseportal.com. All right, see some people starting to filter in. There is uh, Jennifer LeBay in the house. Great to see you. And um, I know we've got uh, people coming in from YouTube as well as the uh, Connected Universe Portal. So really do appreciate it this evening. Okay, this evening we're going to be talking about a number of different things. Really, you know, start to the year. We did have our first class uh, last week on UFO hotspots, kind of piggybacking off the Ancient Aliens episode I was uh, just recently on. But there's a lot of things that have been going on here over the past month. I mean, really our last class before the holiday break was middle December the 14th. And so I just thought we'd go over some of the different news that's been going on. We had the UAP report that just came out last week, which I thought uh, was was pretty interesting. And I see several others that are starting to uh, join in. Uh, Sylvain, great to see you down there, Sylvain. Karen, great to see you as well. Uh, all right. So let's go ahead and just dive right into this. That that UAP report, what in the world can we glean from this? Oh, wait, 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 what am I doing here? What am I doing? First thing first, wow, we have to get to the class question. <laughs> so one of the topics we are going to be talking about this evening is artificial intelligence. And so that was a class question that I threw out there uh, on the social media today, which was, what excites you or frightens you most about the progress being made in artificial intelligence? And we actually had several responses to this. So first up from Connie Mayaneki, she says, I'm just looking forward to that live-in made someday, preferably one that can also get to the grocery store and get groceries for me. Uh, what's kind of funny about that is, you know, back in the early 80s, maybe mid 80s, when we were first learning about computers are basically showing us like a flowchart type of diagram of, you know, how a computer kind of thinks and works, but they use an example of taking out the trash. So I thought, you know, whenever my family got a computer in the house, it would take out the trash for me. <laughs> Didn't quite work out like that. All right. Also uh, from Alina, she said, I personally don't feel excited about it. My main concern is everyone losing and forgetting what being human is. We need more authentic intelligence, not less. Uh, yeah, it, it seems like we can kind of get lost in a lot of our technology. You know, how many times we see somebody just kind of, you know, face down into the phone and in some ways it's bringing us all together and other ways it's, uh, it's also tearing us apart. So there's pros and cons to all of this sort of thing. Uh, Jennifer LeBay says, I'm scared that AI will become smarter than us and take over. And then she threw down, uh, a Terminator meme. <laughs> Uh, Lori Hildebrandt said the fact that is probably being weaponized by many countries and corporations. We will actually get to that here uh, in a little bit and not from a person you're really expecting from. And then Chirsty off of Instagram said, I'm not so much concerned by computers becoming more like humans, but humans becoming more like computers, which is a uh, which is a really interesting take with all of this technology 
that we're getting ourselves wrapped into, is there a part of it that's actually dehumanizing us? Uh, even though, like I said, we are becoming more connected, uh, you know, we can interact with people all across the globe, you know, at the drop of a hat. But is there something that's actually taken away from our humanity in it? So all great questions. All right. So now let's go ahead and get to that UAP report, and then we'll get into the artificial intelligence and, uh, and, and have an interesting evening. All right, here we go. So this, is the, this came out on, what was the 11th or 12th? It was just last week. Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the 2022 Annual Report on Unidentified Phenomena. And to me, there really wasn't a whole lot in it. You know, it kind of defined some, some new offices, uh, you know, the establishment of uh, the DOD's All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, Office, or otherwise called ARO, which, according to them, should facilitate more coordinated UAP efforts, uh, resulting in greater attribution of UAP. Um, and it gets into a bunch of technical jar jargon uh, as far as what the office is supposed to do. But basically, it's their their new collection hub for UAP reports. And uh, they break it down that uh, there's a total of 247 new UAP reports, uh, an additional 119 on events that occurred before March 5th of 2021, but were not included in the preliminary assessment. Uh, these are combined with the 144 uh, from the preliminary assessment for a grand total of 510 to date. Of course, you guys know that, uh, you know, I, al I already take an issue with the fact that this includes nothing out of Project Blue Book. Uh, you know, there were still over 700 open cases from that, and we're just going to completely dismiss that. And then, of course, there's a huge gap between when they really started keeping track of this stuff again and, you know, the end of Project Blue Book. So what's going on with those couple of decades in there? We're just going to completely disregard that. Uh, you also see in here um, that they've already uh, eliminated some things or eliminated some things. Uh, 26 characterized as unmanned aircraft system. 163 characterized as balloon or balloon-like entities. Yes, mylar balloons can get uh, stuck up there in... in look like UAPs, and six attributed to clutter. Uh, one of the other things that uh, kind of bothers me about this is that the majority of new UAP reporting originates from U.S. Navy and U.S. Air Force aviators and operators who witness UAP during their course of operational duties. Uh, basically, these are military reports. Now, on one hand, you can say it's great military personnel are feeling a lot freer to be able to report this type of phenomenon. That is a good thing. On the flip side of that, you're not taking into account any of the civilian sightings, of which are numerous. So I'd really like to see them start uh, in, including like a lot of the MUFON research and a, a lot of what they're doing because um, you know, th there's a lot more of us, of civilians, than military to be able to watch and observe these things. And I've said this before, I, I believe one of the reasons why they're finally acknowledging that, okay, this is legit, and we're going to put together these different task force and, and things like this, is because they can no longer just blanket deny everything. Uh, we have too much in our hands these days with technology that the, the common person can see something and point their phone up at the sky and capture a pretty good image so they can no longer deny these things so they're they're starting to come around a little bit but still there's that separation uh they they did say in their hearing last summer that they would start including you know some more of the civilian cases but with this report here we're just not seeing that which is unfortunate so we will keep a lookout on that and uh and see what comes uh, this year. Um, and back on the AI, which we're going to get into here uh, in just a second, Sarah says, I would be afraid that they would surpass us as the dominant species and deem humanity irrelevant. Uh, yeah, and that's kind of what we see a lot in our sci-fi. And uh, let's see. See, Android Paranormal says, hey, Mike Haver, great to see you, Android. Been a little while. And Lori has made it. All right. Um, 
Yeah, she's coming in through Connected Universe Portal. So, yeah, that's where the main site is, ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Um, I am simulcasting this one on YouTube this evening, but our typical Wednesday class is usually just within the Connected Universe Portal, ConnectedUniversePortal.com. All right. So let's go ahead and get into, into AI and what's going on here. A um, few, few different articles that have come out here recently. And we did a, um, a segment on artificial intelligence last year, probably a good six, seven, eight months ago, something like that. We did talk a little bit about the, the whole chatbot thing. And that's why we brought it up uh, back then was uh, because of the, the chatbot that deemed that it was alive. We're not going to rehash that one, but uh, there is, of course, the new chat GPT which apparently is, uh, it can apply to jobs. So this is OpenAI's new chatbot, ChatGPT. And what had happened was that it was fed real job descriptions for a social media assistant role, a ledger clerk position, uh, and threw in, they threw in some sentences of made up personal experience. And basically it spat out some cover letters that were sent to real hiring managers to take a look. And one particular recruitment expert stated, we would likely think this was written by a genuine candidate and follow up with a screening call. Although they do admit that still needs some work because it lacks the personal touch. We learn about a candidate's human experiences, anecdotal evidence to back up their skills and passion for the role. So getting there, but not quite. And that's something I guess we can still say about all of this because I've, I've played around, you know, if you throw, I'm not going to say her name, the 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 A woman, because she's sitting on my desk right here, unless Jen unplugged her the other day. Um, you can do a, a test chat bot in there and kind of play around and, uh, you know, they get some statistics and, you know, they kind of learn if their chat bot is really working and it does okay. But the thing that it really lacks is that those little human subtleties, but it seems like uh, they are getting a bit closer with that. So I see uh, Tom McNicholas is down there in the house, as well as Alina. Great to see you all. Earthcat, thanks for joining us tonight. So when it does come to chatbots, so the one I do like to bring up and mention, uh, it's, it's one of those urban legends. It's based off of something real that happened that I do like to throw down there and dismiss. It's the whole Alice and Bob tale. So that was from 2017, Facebook chatbot Alice and Bob began conversing in their own made-up language. And basically what was going on was uh, it was a game where not only were the chatbots involved, but also human players. And the idea, the idea with this game was that they were bartering for virtual items such as books, hats, balls, uh, things like that. And Alice and Bob had demonstrated they could make deals with varying degrees of success. But what had happened with their own language was that they had figured out a way to be able to talk to each other, circumvent the human players really. So what the researchers of this game had deduced was they hadn't incentivized the bots to stick to the rules of English. So what resulted was like seemingly nonsensical dialogue. And because this was like bartering and their bidding and things like that, the chatbots would use like the same word like four times to designate the number four and things like that. So while the human players of the game are sitting there watching this, like, you know, why is it spitting out, you know, four of the same word and then six of another word and things like that to the chatbots, it was, it was numbers. Um, so the urban legend is that it was completely shut down. But really what it was is they just rewrote the program to prioritize English instead. So um, it wasn't a complete shutdown of the chatbot. So, all right. Now this one here, I just posted a couple of days ago, or maybe it was last week. Scientists say they're now actively trying to build conscious robots. So, uh, 
Todd Lipson, the mechanical engineer in charge of Creative Machines Lab at Columbia University said, this is not just another research question that we're working on. This is the question. If we can create a machine that will have consciousness on par with a human, this will eclipse everything we've done. So it's not just enough for them to say, we're going to create an intelligent machine that can make decisions on the fly, say like, you know, your self-driving car and thing like, things like that. Imagine if your self-driving car was more like Kit from Knight Rider, where it actually had like a distinct personality. But even further to the point that, you know, they want very human robots that can act and think and work as humans do. So this is like very, you know, how many of you have seen Westworld, the very Westworld-ish where it got to the point where you couldn't really tell the, uh, the robots from the humans and the, the whole premise really uh, was, you know, what is consciousness? You know, were these machines actually alive? Did they have a real consciousness? And that's what a lot of these scientists are actually trying to accomplish is basically like they're, you know, they're playing God in the laboratory. You know, let's actually, you know, see if we can create something with a real conscious that you know, not only can just, you know, simulate decision-making, uh, but is very, very human in nature as well. Although I will say there are there are many humans out there that don't seem to have a conscious at all. They just do crazy stuff. So um, so Sarah says, sounds like it's creating a new race for slavery. Well, depends. Depends on what they end up trying to use the, the robots for. So now that would end up being something like the Matrix. If you've ever seen the Animatrix where they show the uh, the origin story of the robots, basically the, the robots... Uh, even though they had uh, that's very significant artificial intelligence, they were basically made to do menial labor and, and things like that. And they basically rebelled, which seems to be a lot of those type of stories that uh, in the science fiction aspect, all of this is that, you know, we create a slave race of robots that are so intelligent and they become empowered and basically rebel against us. Um, you know, we even see that it, it's kind of scary when you think about it, because we see that as a recurring theme throughout our like even our, uh, you know, religious doctrine that, uh, you know, we rebelled against the creator sort of thing. And I'm not even going to pick out one specific religion, uh, but, you know, we see that play out in those type of doctrines, even, um, you know, if you look at stories of, you know, the Anunnaki, um, they, you know, talk about humans were, you know, genetically engineered to become a slave race. And, you know, we eventually rebelled. So uh, you, you see that recurrent theme a lot. Um, let's see, Lori saying, looking way into the future, why was Stephen Hawking so worried? Like, why wouldn't humans just be able to unplug something? Where, how could it actually take full control? Well, and we're going to see it a little bit later. It's going to become harder and harder and harder to just pull the plug on something. Uh, when we start getting into this idea of uh, uh, quantum teleportation of energy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're going to go there. All right. So... When it comes to artificial intelligence, we generally think of, you know, 70s, 80s sci-fi, maybe even, you know, a little bit further back into the 60s. Um, it actually goes much, much further back. So, you know, we're going to we're gonna talk a little bit about Tesla here. This is actually our, the first drone, uh, the Telautomaton. And basically what this was... Uh, basically it was, it was a mini submarine. Uh, it was a remote controlled boat that he had developed during the Spanish American war. 
Uh, it included wireless torpedoes, and basically Tesla envisioned automatons of all types replacing soldiers on the battlefields and saving human lives. He wrote, the continuous development in this direction must ultimately make war a mere context of machines without men and without loss of life, a condition which will lead, in my opinion, to permanent peace. So Tesla's idea of creating a war drone, which he called the telautomaton, was that the machines would fight each other and the humans would not. So that's why, surprisingly, he actually created a machine for war, but that was not in his nature to be warlike at all. He saw it as a solution for war to, to save human lives. Uh, it was never fully realized back then, you know, but the concepts and ideas were uh, put into place. And of course, this was utilizing uh, his his wireless technology and what you know ultimately became uh, radio power, uh, which Marconi stole from him. So Marconi, for uh, many many years, got the credit for developing the radio when basically he was using Tesla's equipment and ideas. And because um, he was a better marketer. In any case, that's an aside. Well, we see the origins there, and Tesla actually took this a step further with his ideas. And a lot of the different things that Tesla had in his head and he talked about and he wrote about, um, he never actually saw come to fruition in his own life, but he was way the heck ahead of his time because basically people were, you know, would laugh at his ideas. And, you know, something that was kind of raw, practical, okay, harness the power of Niagara Falls, you know, to create electricity. Okay, I can see that. Talking about a device that you could hold in your pocket that would contain the information of the world. And basically we have our cell phones these days, but he would, you know, laughed out of the room for that. The same thing when it comes to artificial intelligence. He actually talked about this back then. Again, he called it an automaton. And the reason why I'm going down this route in some of the stuff I'm actually reading off here is stuff that I've written for my upcoming book, Connecting the Universe. Um, so his idea here I'm trying to find a good place to pick up because uh, I don't want to read off the entire thing here. Um, so basically, he believed our lives were controlled from external source, jacked in the matrix, into the matrix, so to speak, which, of course, wouldn't become a pop culture sensation for another 100 years. But he viewed his automaton boat as the first non-biological life form. So let me pop back to here real quick. Uh, he viewed it as the first non-biological life form on Earth for it could obey his commands given far in advance, it would be capable of distinguishing between what it ought and what it ought not to do and of recording impressions, which will definitely affect its subsequent actions. But he went further where he said um, that he conceptualized the idea of robots with AI thinking for themselves and even had the ability to dream. So he said, Long ago, I conceived the idea of constructing an automaton which would mechanically represent me and which would respond as I do myself. Such an automaton evidently had to have motive power, organs for locomotion, directive organs, and one or more sensitive organs so adapted as to be excited by external stimuli. Whether the automaton be a flesh and bone or of wood and steel, it mattered little, provided it could provide all the duties required of it like an intelligent being. So this is like 120 years ago that he's talking about, maybe closer to like 125 years ago, that he's talking about creating an, basically a robot with artificial intelligence. And we are actually bringing that, those things to life now. Uh, if you go back to our uh, class that we did last year, uh, we actually broke down several of the different uh, AI robots that have been developed in recent years that some of them are kind of creepy. <laughs> some of them are definitely pretty creepy. Um, but others give, you know, really, you know, very uh, lifelike responses, which in and of itself is kind of creepy too. So, um Let's see, we have uh, Sarah. In the metaphysical world, 
It is promoted to reach higher personal resonances and frequencies through meditation. Could an alien race be guiding us to reach them? Uh, it's it's quite possible. Um, you know, we may be giving be giving um, you know little hints and clues to kind of help us along the way. Um, it you know people speculate. I mean, it's it's all pure speculation, right? Um, you know, sometimes we like to think that. Um, you know, maybe we were seated here from another planet or, you know, we've been planet hopping. Uh, maybe we can't, maybe we're on Mars last time and we came from somewhere outside the solar system. Maybe we're a lost colony of some, uh, you know, civilization out there in the cosmos. Maybe that's why the Egyptians always, uh, pointed to the, uh, constellation of Orion. Actually, a lot of ancient cultures, uh, point to the constellation of Orion. You know, did we originally come from there? It's possible, you know, so, you know, is, is this a test bed for some race? Because we as humans are very, very different than most of the other life forms on this planet. Um, you know, no other life form on this planet has come close to the technology that, that we have developed, unless it's an ultra terrestrial in another dimension that we can't see and interact with. Um, that's a story for another time. Uh, but you know we're the only we're the only ones that um, you know that cook our food or you know wear clothing or anything like anything like that. We're very very different. We act very differently than the other life forms that are around us on this planet. So that leads us many of us to believe that you know, we did not originate from here because we don't have that um, you know natural equilibrium with the other organisms and other life forms around us. We clash. So could be, could be. All right. So that was our uh, AI and automatons. And yeah, Tom, that was uh, <laughs> definitely, uh, definitely pretty creepy there with, uh, uh, with a lot of that for sure. So let's actually get into wormholes in the lab. Speaking of... Uh, you know, things that we are developing here. Like I said, we're going to go over like a number of different newsworthy items from the last uh, little over a month from when we broke for the holidays. And again, I know we had a, a class last week, which basically was just piggybacking off of the Ancient Aliens episode uh, that I was on. So, um, all right. So wormholes in the lab. This is pretty interesting. So on November 30th, Yes, just this past year. This is really recent. Uh, researchers had announced that they forged two minuscule simulated black holes in a quantum computer and transmitted a message between them through what amounted to a tunnel in space-time. So according to Caltech physicist Maria Spir I'm going to butcher her name, Spiropulu, a co-author of the research published in the journal Nature, uh, she says it was a baby wormhole. She said, experimentally for me, I will tell you that it's very, very far away. People come to me and they ask me, can you put your dog in the wormhole? So no, that's a huge leap. And we, we did have a, a, a special segment within the Connected Universe portal on this because I've been traveling and wanted to supply a little bit of extra uh, information and material in between there. And one of the things that I threw out there was, you know, I, it would not be very humane to just take your dog and throw it through a wormhole that you had just developed in the lab. Um, you know, maybe send a probe in there, you know, just put it, put in a camera, maybe a transmitter to, you know, transmit some images back, see where it goes, see what happens. Let's just be like throwing my dog in there. Uh, at least yeah, probably not at first. Right. I mean, I know we've done things like that in the past where we've put animals in space before we started space uh, travel and things like that. But um, yeah, probably, probably not my first go-to when developing a wormhole. In any case, um, she can, uh, no, not her, um, but co-author Joseph Lichen of Fermilab, America's Particle Physics and Accelerator Laboratory, stated, here's the difference between something being possible in principle and possible in reality. But you have to start somewhere. And I think to me, it's just exciting that we're able to get our hands on it at all. He said, it, it looks like a duck. It walks like a duck. It quacks like a duck. 
So that's why we can say at this point that we have something that in the terms of properties we look at, it's it looks like a wormhole. So um, what they have reiterated and what they've tried to, um, I guess, really define is that they haven't they haven't ripped a, a gash into space time. That that has not happened. Um, basically, what they've done is they've created something on a quantum level, which information was passed through using quantum codes in a quantum processor. So it's all lab-based. It's using a quantum computer. It's not, you know, in somebody's backyard where they suddenly, you know, gashed open a hole into space-time, you know, like your classic Einstein-Rosen bridge and went to somewhere else in the cosmos. This was all confined uh, within a computer, which in itself is, is fascinating. In a computer in a lab, I guess, is probably the, the right way to say it. Um, in that sense, to me, it seems more like a simulation. Um, but we are apparently headed down that path. So then the question becomes, of course, what's the next step here? If you're able to you know, create it on a quantum level within a uh, computer lab environment, you know, where do we take that from there? You know, do we do something that's a little more on the physical level? So we, we do know that we have things like X points that are outside of our, uh, outside of the uh, bubble of the earth. Well, actually I would should say right on the edge of it because it's where the earth's magnetism reaches uh, the solar wind, that first point of deflection between the solar wind coming off the sun and the earth. And there we have these fluctuating X points that they've that NASA has actually said these are portals. This is some sort of portal that's occurring there. They can't define where the portal goes, and they can't say with any regularity how often it occurs because it kind of fluctuates. It kind of comes and goes. But it is something that they're studying to try to find out some more information about. Looks like we have some. Uh, Questions and comments down here. Uh, yeah, in a sense, Sarah, they're still theoretical using quantum computers. Um, but as we get further into quantum computing, this is something that we'll be able to generate more of. And that's where we're seeing a lot of these different experiments start to really come to fruition. Um, and then the question could UAPs be a form of AI? Well, um, if, I mean, basically if it was, the I mean, definition of AI is, you know, intelligence developed artificially. I just used the words to define it, which is not how you're supposed to define a word. But basically um, you have, we, we view it as being machine-based. Doesn't necessarily have to be machine-based. If you are, if you know enough to, develop organic life. Could you create an artificial intelligence within that organic life? It's theoretically possible to do that. Um, could the UAPs be that? Well, I mean, if you had um, your AI was, you know, creating a light anomaly, sure, you know. Um, so it could be, it could be. All right. So let's continue on since we we're talking about X point space, things like that. Um, switch here to some news from the James Webb Telescope. Uh, this was kind of interesting the other day. This was out of Sky and Telescope, where J the James Webb Telescope is finding too many galaxies, which I, I find the, the title of that pretty humorous, finding too many galaxies, which seems really a strange thing to say. But basically, it's the telescope is finding more things out there than previous, previously expected. So they're either more than they expected or they're brighter than what they expected them to be. So evidence is building that the first galaxies formed either earlier than expected um, or they are um, more mature and, and numerous. So 
when they're looking at our deep sky objects, um, you know, they're expecting to see specific properties. And because the James Webb telescope can actually take in a lot more information than previously, like with the Hubble, we're discovering a lot more out there. So, um, Hao-Jun Yan of the University of Missouri, who's um, deep into this, says, um, he's one of the scientists on this, he says, our previously favored picture of galaxy formation in the early universe must be revised. So, yeah, and they're finding that the earliest stellar uh, objects are more mature, more numerous, um, and it's multiple teams now that have, that have discovered this, looking at the data. Which tells us, really, we still don't know a dang thing about our universe. You know, I mean, we know some stuff, but um, you know, the more technology that we throw out there, and the more we amp it up, and the more we keep looking deeper and deeper and deeper, um, we tend to end up throwing a lot of what we previously thought out the window. You know, I, it would not surprise me a hundred years from now, all those, the, all the things that we're thinking now can be completely discredited in that, you know, we'll have a very, very different picture of the universe a uh, hundred years down the road because we did a hundred years ago, <laughs> you know, compare, even compare you know, 200 years ago, very, very different than what we thought. Um, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it becomes, let's say funny to me, but in a way it does how, um, you know, some people, will just hold on to and hold on to and hold on to uh, you know, some of their beliefs about whether it's the universe, about things here on earth, um, just because of traditions, the way they were taught, maybe they have a book on the subject, whatever, write a new book. Um, you know, when all the evidence is flying in the face of, you know, of the way things actually happened and actually occurred, which of course, when we get into things like, uh, ancient Egypt and lost civilizations. We see that here on earth, but when it comes to the cosmos, I mean, there's a lot out there that we just simply don't know about. So, you know, because of this, we may be seeing that the universe is older than we previously thought. You know, it's not like when we come up with that, we're, we're using math to figure it out. You know, we look at patterns within the universe, run some math into it and say, you know, the universe is this many years old. The earth is this many years old. So it could be older now. So we've been going with the idea that, you know, the, the universe is about 14 and a half billion years old. The earth is 4 billion years old. Something to that effect, right? Or is it 13 and a half billion? What, it, many, many billions, right? So we've talked about here before that um, there's been plenty of time for... Um, and some physicists even say that our current solar system was spawned out of another. So for a whole other, uh, you know, solar system to be born, to live, to die off, and then come and create ours, uh, you know, is just fascinating to think about. So, you know, bits and pieces of our world may be from some previously uh, existing solar system that, that had other life on it. We will get into panspermia here in, in just a moment. You know, but it also gives other civilizations out there in the universe time to develop. So, you know, the idea that, you know, we're alone in the universe uh, is just preposterous because there's billions. And that's another thing is that discovering that there's more out there means that there's even billions and billions and billions of more systems out there uh, that potentially have intelligent life. Um, yeah, in Android, or maybe this is evidence they have the age of the universe totally wrong. Absolutely. Um, Sylvain, I wonder if a portal could be a type of UI. Um, I would say that a portal could probably be spawned off or spun, spawned up, I guess. You know, spin up a portal. I don't um, Generated. How about we go with that? <laughs> Uh, very possible that a portal could be generated by AI. If the, if the AI has the intelligence and know-how 
or maybe it learns along the way to be able to create a portal. Yeah, very well, uh, very well could be. So, um, so Ain, could the paranormal time slips point to potential wormholes or portals? Um, what I think is going on there now uh, with a time slip. Now, could somebody pass through a, uh, a a portal or a wormhole to another point in time? Yes, I truly believe so that you could do that. Uh, but I believe that there are certain environmental factors that um, you know two two moments in time will resonate at the same frequency, and that's when you start to get a glimpse of you know another. Uh, you know, another point in time, and maybe they look at you, you know, as if you're from, you know, another point in time. And, you know, when we talk about some of the, um, you know, paranormal activity, ghosts, that sort of thing, are we actually just looking, maybe it's not a ghost that we're seeing, maybe it's another point in time, and they look at us as if we are the ghosts. And then, you know, some of these people that, uh, you know, go missing in the woods, uh, you know, are they, falling through some sort of portal into another point in time. Because you hear about, you know, from some people that are actually found later on, um, you know, from one person's point of view, if they were like walking along with somebody, you're like, I, they were right there. They were on the path with me and they suddenly disappeared. And weeks later, they find the person and, you know, it's like a miracle that they're found. Okay, what happened? I'm like, I don't know. There was a noise off on the side of the path. I took a step out into the woods and all of a sudden, when I went back to the path, it was gone. And I just took like two steps out into the woods. You know, so what happened there? Did they pass through some sort of portal? One, did it teleport them? Or two, did it take them to another point in time, that to a point in time when the path wasn't there? And then, um, and then at some point they were able to get back. There's a lot of different things that you could go down uh, with that. So, all right. So I did mention teleportation. Uh, we are going to talk about that real quick. All right. Uh, I just posted this one this morning. First demonstration of energy teleportation. So this type of teleportation uh, is the ability to send quantum information from one part of the universe to another without traveling through the, uh, the space in between. By sending all the information that describes a single particle and passing it to another, this second particle takes on all the characteristics of the first. But the key idea behind quantum energy teleportation is that the energy of any quantum system is constantly fluctuating. It is these natural energy fluctuations that can be exploited on a quantum level. So I know, very wordy to try to uh, wrap your mind around. But um, the idea of, basically, we're, we're talking about entanglement here. And China, some years back, uh, had reported that they had teleported, um, I mean, not energy and not a person or anything like that, but information from their location on the ground up to space, uh, basically a, a packet of information, which isn't a lot, granted, uh, but at that point it had been the furthest that anything had been quote-unquote teleported and now they're doing it with energy. So, but they're using the principles of quantum entanglement. So the idea, and this is what Einstein calls spooky action at a distance, where when the properties of one particle changes, there's, there's really no transfer. They're calling it uh, teleportation, but there's no transfer. There's no, um, there's no real communication or transmission time or anything like that. It's as soon as the one changes, the other changes instantly. And so China was able to do that with a packet of information where at the exact same instant, you know, their particle information on the ground changed and the one up in space changed exactly the same. So now they're saying that they can do this. Oops, wrong one. Now they're saying that they can actually do this with energy. So imagine, if you will, that it's almost like turning the light on, right? So, okay, from our phones right now, we can say, all right, turn on, you know, the light in, you know, my room, you know, using your smart home sort of thing. Okay. 
But let's say that instead of doing that, you're in a, a room that you've constructed to look exactly in, in maybe you're on vacation or whatever, but you've, you're on vacation at a house that's exactly the same as your house on the other side of the country. And when you flip your light switch on at that, at this house, the one at the other house also comes on exact same time. It's, it, but, and I guess you have to put the caveat on there without a signal, okay? Like there's no, because I know at this point in time with as fast as our networks are, you could hit a button and things would be done like immediately. But this is without that communication there. It's just when the state of one changes, the state of the other changes, and they're now actually doing this with energy. So um, the, it got brought up earlier. Um, I think it was Lori who said, well, you know, makes you wonder about, okay, just unplugging it. This is where just unplugging it might not be good enough. If they are able to, in an instant, transport or teleport energy, you don't have to have things plugged in anymore, right? Um, you could just change the state and it's on and it's up and running. So this is goes back to Tesla talking about having wireless energy. You know, if if we're able to just teleport it like this, that's his wireless that's his wireless energy idea. All of these years later, harnessing it very differently, but still the concept is there. All right. Um, all right, EarthCAD. The people involved with the Philadelphia experiment or Project Montauk claim that humans have gone through wormholes into the past and the future. Yeah. Um, no, I, I absolutely believe that. And you know, the reason being, we're not going to get into stack time theory here. Uh, but basically, just to break it down real quick, uh, if time is happening all concurrently, past, present, future, all at the same time, and if you just figure out the right frequency to change your moment to any of those other moments, then yeah, you could very easily pass from one point in time to another. Again, we're not going to get into all of that, but um, that would essentially be be using that technology to go to the past and the future because time's all happening concurrently. Yeah, Tom, imagine asking to send me to my alternate dimension. Let's try that. Let's try that. Uh, Android asking, uh, Mike, how do you think it's possible scientists now theorize up to 12 other invisible dimensions are possible based off of their math, but yet continue to laugh at ghosts and aliens? Yeah, that's kind of funny. Um, theoretically, we have up to a, a 11 dimensions, and that includes a zero dimension. I'm holding a pen, so that looks kind of weird. It includes a zero dimension, uh, and then 10 others after that. Um, yeah, and, and they say, well, some of these are down at like the nuclear level and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's, and that's kind of the thing, you know, what, if we do have these other dimensions, would there not be, um, other forms of energy, other forms of life within those dimensions? So, uh, we've talked before about ultra terrestrials. You know, these could be beings that are just simply living on one of those other dimensions that are around us at all times. You know, our eyes can only see into certain spectrums. Our ears can only hear on certain wavelengths. And we need other equipment to be able to view some of these things and hear some of these things that we can't. You know, how many, you know, different waves of energy and communications are passing through our bodies right now that, we can't pick it up, but if I turn on, you know, a radio receiver or something, it will pick it up. Um, you know, all of that is around us. So when we talk about another dimension, then what's within that dimension? What type of other, uh, you know, wavelengths and spectrums and things like that are within that other dimension? And yeah, they're supposed to be uh, up to 11. And what's within those? What's within those? All right, so 
That then takes us to panspermia. We've got about 10 minutes for this. And so uh, this was another one that I recently posted here. So uh, building blocks of life found a meteorite that crash landed into Gloucestershire. A lot, a lot of people have scoffed at the notion of panspermia, that life has, uh, has come from outside of our planet via meteorite. Because I guess a lot of people for a long time um, just believe that within the vacuum of space, it would kill off all life. But yet, out in space orbiting our planet, they have found uh, what, like plankton and other small, uh, other small life forms out there that were able to survive. But new research has been published on the organic analysis of this uh, of the Winchcombe meteorite that crashed landed into a driveway in Wit in Winchcombe. If I'm pronouncing it right, Winchcombe, Gloucestershire, Gloucestershire. In 2021, the research led by Dr. Queenie Chan from the Department of Earth Sciences at Royal Holloway University of London found organic compounds from space that hold the secrets to the origin of life. Uh, the study showed and found a range of organic matter, which reveals that the meteorite was once from a part of an asteroid where liquid water occurred. So she says, studying the organic inventory of the Winchcombe meteorite provided us with a window into the past. How simple chemistry kick-started the origin of life at the birth of our solar system. Discovering these life's precursors, precursor organic molecules allowed us to comprehend the fall of similar material to the surface of the Earth prior to the emergence of life on our own planet. This paper was published in uh, Meteoritics and Planetary Science. So, yeah, some people have uh, talked about, like... Um, like the octopus, it's a completely different animal than you know, pretty much anything else you find on Earth, right? I, I mentioned that before with humans, um, but the uh, the octopus is extremely, extremely different. And there are those that believe that uh, the the precursors or the origins of the octopus actually came to this planet off of a meteorite, and. You know, it's also uh, kind of baffling to me how, you know, the notion of life here beginning out there uh, was hard for a lot of people to take in because when you talk about the formation of the earth in the water that is on our planet, um, even though there's still some debate within the scientific circles, uh, you know, many physicists believe that, well, yeah, you know, when the earth was being formed, you know, the, uh, the ice that was on a lot of the meteorites that crashed into the earth melted and, you know, formed the water that we have on the planet. You know, and that seems to be a lot more readily accepted, even though, like I said, there's still some debate on the topic, although I believe that, yes, water from, you know, that's on our planet now came from out there, but there's still some debate. Um, but they're more readily accepting of that than the idea of, you know, life forms coming from, you know, basically outer space. I mean, I guess it sounds too alien and too uh, sci-fi uh, for people to kind of take in and accept that, yeah, organic matter from out in space came to Earth. Um, you know, especially if, you know, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, if we were born out of another solar system, the remnants of that solar system be floating around us and eventually smack into us. When this solar system formed up, it was using, you know, the dust and material, uh, the rock, the ice, everything that was around it to form up and coalesce into this. Uh, same with Mars, same with, with Venus to a degree. Um, the gas giant, the gas giants kind of have their own thing going on. Um, but it's, you know, very possible and they're finding more and more evidence of Okay, there was life on Mars at one point. They're still trying to piece the, the pieces of that mystery together. You know, but it was enough for us to be able to form up and, and create life here. And we're going to be finding that elsewhere uh, out in the universe. So, all right. Um, 
So Sarah, is panspermia suggestive of originating from a single source like the singularity of the Big Bang? <laughs> well, yeah, um, connected universe, we're all connected. So basically I believe in the oscillating universe. Um, you know, and we see this in our ancient symbolism. We've gone over ancient symbolism here, like the Ouroboros, the constant recycle and renewal. Now we talk about that here on earth, you know, as, um, as life dies and decays into the ground, so forth springs new life. Um, that's not just a property here on earth. That's a property all throughout the universe. Just talked about, um, you know, from the death of a solar system, so forth sprung our solar system. Um, you know, so yeah, there is, you know, we are from some a originating source. And the question becomes, what was, what was before the Big Bang? Well, if you just kind of keep taking that concept and expanding it and expanding it and expanding it from, you know, life here on this planet, say a tree or a flower or whatever dies and so forth grows more flowers and trees to animals, to humans, to the solar system alert that we were just talking about. Same thing with a galaxy, same thing with the universe. When the universe dies and decays, so forth springs a new universe. So I get into a lot of that type of detail uh, in, in the new book that is coming out. No time frame on when the new book is coming out, but that stuff I've been diving into uh, with that. So, all right, uh, Tom, I believe we need something to activate our unused parts of our brain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If we are, if we're only using up to ten percent, you know, once we access that, uh, where can we go from there? And uh, yeah, and Earthcat, octopi are very intelligent. Uh, yeah, yeah, extremely different from anything else on this planet and very, very intelligent. A lot of our marine life is very intelligent. Like dolphins are extremely intelligent. And what's interesting is um, they've taken uh, recordings of, of dolphins, of birds, of humans, and they've, you know, sped them up and slowed them down and they've, you know, kind of, tinkered with that a little bit and basically they've kind of shown how you know we we kind of all end up sounding the same it's just on a bit of a different frequency and wavelength and oscillation um and when you kind of tinker with that oscillation a little bit then we're, we're sounding very very similar it's pretty interesting um so somewhere along the line because we are all connected um we all have within us the resonance of the universe, even though we may be resonating on a certain frequency within our current dimension. Uh, we may be very different in nature, like the, the way that humans are from like the other animals on the planet, even though we may have a lot of those type of differences. When it comes down to what we're made of, the matter, um, you know, there, there is still a connection in there throughout with not just the physical matter, but also, um, but also our consciousness. So that's probably getting a little too deep for this one, but, um, but uh, we'll get there in some of these classes coming up. All right, everybody, that is it for this evening. I want to thank everybody for joining us on both sides of the house this evening, both within the Connecting Universe portal and also out there on the Mike Ricksecker YouTube channel. So uh, next week, we're going to, because uh, we do have the Egypt tour coming up here, we will be diving a little bit more back into things on the Egypt side, and that'll be within uh, the Connected Universe Portal. So ConnectedUniversePortal.com. For those who are uh, not familiar, please check that out because uh, that's where we will be holding the uh, the upcoming classes. 30-day free trial. So, you know, by all means, come check it out. Boatloads of material there uh, within the member area. And then we have the new community area uh, that we've that we've launched here, which is still just still in beta. So I've seen some uh, weird quirks and things happening within there. But um uh, but it's been fun. You know, we've got the the reading room in there. You got the little challenges. Um, the uh, we're going to do a uh, meet up here for the Mike's morning mug here pretty soon, uh, which would be very cool. So, all right, everybody, have a good night. 
Till next time, time really exists.